0: For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit on the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. But uh, this is the word of the Lord.
1: We believe it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for giving us your word, uh, and I pray that right now that you would. Um, Keep this from just being another box that we check this week, that truly you would capture our minds, our emotions, our wheels, our entire being, uh, that you would speak very clearly um, through me, through your word, and that this would be um, a life-transforming experience, that it would settle deep into our hearts, and that it would transform us more in the image of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. maybe may be seated. <clears throat> Last Saturday, my... Beautiful wife, turned 38 years old, and because we love food, we celebrated on Friday by going on a date night to My Pie in Jonesboro. It's one of her favorite places. It's really good. If you've not tried it, you should go check it out. And then on Saturday, um, I had asked her a few weeks earlier, like, if you were to have your last meal, like one more meal, that's it, what would it be? And she told me, and I thought, well, I'm just going to take that and do it for her birthday. And so on Saturday, uh, I got some sushi from Kimono. I then made uh, some shrimp tacos for her and paired it with a Dr. Pepper from Pizza Inn because she says Pizza Inn has the best Dr. Pepper. Uh, I don't know about that. I actually asked the manager, is that true? She said, I've never heard that before either, but anyways, it's her birthday, so that's what we did. Um, And then uh, we shared dessert with a couple members from her family and a couple friends. We had some tiramisu cake from Abanzari and a chocolate pecan pie that her grandma had made that Megan says is like a little peace of heaven on earth and so it's a really beautiful day Saturday is actually my Sabbath it's when I rest and so it's a great day overall but then on Sunday I woke up come to this building early like I try to do and I find out that our building possibly is on fire uh good news is it wasn't a uh a Jay Lewis is a hero he saved us all and so there he is firefighter thank you Jay um also in my missional community just saying but um it was great and then I found out we had technology issues with the sound. There's just some of the little things that happened here. I didn't find like my sermon, like it landed at all. Sometimes I preach sermons. I'm like, I think they got it. Other times I'm like, ah, that was, should, should redo that one. And then I go home and I find out my son Moses has a 103 fever. And so I'm like, okay, all right. And so next morning, my wife just, as you know, just started teaching uh, ninth grade English at Green County Tech, so she didn't want to already miss a day of school. So I take Moses to the doctor, come to find out he tests positive for covid and we are told that he has to stay home all five days, even though he actually was bouncing off the walls by Tuesday. He had to stay home all five days. And so I'm, we're trying to scramble and figure out, you know, like, my wife is no longer a stay-at-home mom. She's full-time. I'm full-time. What are we going to do? And so we try to figure that out. Tuesday morning, 4.15, my daughter Nora wakes up with a bad headache and 104.2 fever. Uh, two hours after that, Wyatt wakes up with 103.7 fever. The next day, Megan comes home. She has a headache and a fever, and I'm like, I mean, this is, I'm like, I, I, I'm trying to decide, should I just burn the house down, like, what's what's the best thing to do, you know, um, but I'm cooking dinner, I'm cleaning up after dinner, I go and stop a nosebleed uh, that one of my kids had, I go outside, I mow the yard, I come back in, I'm sweaty, I'm hot, uh, uh, the laundry is not done because apparently our dryer has broke again, um, <clears throat> but honestly, like, I'm keeping my cool, um, and part of it was because I knew that I was about to get to eat some of my favorite ooey-gooey protein cookies that I have been making every single night, by the way. Could be an addiction, might be a problem, I don't know, but they're supposed to be healthy for you. I'll give you a recipe later, by the way, Gretchen, if you want them. They're fantastic. Um, One of the key ingredients, though, to these cookies is creamy peanut butter. We were out of creamy peanut butter er earlier that day. I was thinking ahead, so I asked Megan to pick some up on the way home. So I go to open what I think is creamy peanut butter, only to discover that it's actually crunchy peanut butter. Uh, That's a big deal, by the way, y'all, because you cannot make ooey-gooey cookies with crunchy nuts inside of them. And so I I don't think I said anything. I think I just grabbed my keys, and I go to walk out the door, and Megan says, where are you going? And I said, to Walmart for the third night in a row, which was key for, or code for, like, you're making my life harder because you didn't get the right peanut butter. And so I go out the door, and I'm sulking as I'm walking through Walmart, throw myself a pity party, and all of a sudden I hear someone say, hey, pastor, from a distance. And it was a guy that works at Allen Engineering. Most of you know I'm a chaplain there a few hours a week. And uh, I get talking to this guy and come to find out he had just lost his mom, and he had just left the funeral. And um, we got talking about his own grief around that. And I said, well, how's your dad doing? And he said, man, I've never met my dad. I don't know my father. Uh, he, he, he left us when we were young, and, of course, he was – struggling as we sit there and process that for about 10 or 15 minutes and as we spoke i was reminded that though the world is filled with delight think about chocolate pecan pie that your grandma makes it's also filled with death disease and personal dysfunction and natural disasters right think about wildfires and hurricanes and heat waves that threaten lives this past week and so on the one hand we live in a world that is really beautiful but on the other hand we live in a world that's really broken um, I went to the Green County Tech Paragold game on Friday night with Philip Greer and Daniel McDonald, two guys in our church, and was excited about that. And literally, literally, as I walk into the gate to the, to the game, I get a phone call from a woman in our church, Ginger, who was sharing with me about how her granddaughter, Olivia, Matt Mallory's daughter, had just had an hour-long seizure and was in the hospital. And a couple hours later, I'm getting out of the shower, and I hear the helicopter fly over our house to go airlifter to Lebanon. And I'm talking to, you know, Mallory at 11 o'clock at night on the phone, and, 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 and she's, you know, heading down to the Bonner and, and trying to meet Matt there. And, you know, Matt, uh, Olivia had to ride on the helicopter by herself. It was a whole ordeal. And I just got off the phone, and I told Megan, I was like, man, this is not the way it should be. Like, no ki- no parent should ever have to put their kid on a helicopter uh, because they can't, like, get these seizures under control. Like that's not the way things are supposed to be. And as I think about all this stuff that's just kind of transpired over the last five days, the question that I... Uh, I want to ask and try to answer this morning is why? Like, why does that stuff happen? Like, why is it that there is so much pain and suffering? Why is it despite, like, you know, our education and and technological advancements and and, and medical advancements, like, why is the world still such a mess? And in order to answer that question, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, and so you can look back with me and just set the context for you. If you remember from last week in the first installment of this series, Out of the overflow of love, the triune God created a good and perfect world. At the climax of his creation, he creates Adam and Eve in his image, right, to mirror him to the world. And and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. I want you to also rule over my creation to to take it into this kind of even more desirable destination. And so here they are in the Garden of Eden, which also means the Garden of Paradise, the Garden of Delight. And in this world full of yeses, God gives them one no. And here's the note, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. I'll just read it to you. This is, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, there's probably a lot of questions that would raise for you, things like, Why does God not want the first humans to have knowledge of good and evil? Like, wouldn't you want to teach your kids the difference between right and wrong? And so what's that about? Or you might have questions like if God created everything good, which we saw last week, then why is this tree considered not to be good or something they don't need to eat from? And it's, it's you know, kind of fun to think about that stuff and, and to debate it. But, but here's the thing. I don't want you this morning to miss the forest because of the tree. Okay? Sorry. Um, Preach your humor. The main thing that I want you to see right here is this. Okay? And you have to get this. When God created the very first humans, he gave them the ability to choose. Let me see it right here. He gives humans the ability to make a choice. And here is the choice that is before the first humans. Am I going to trust God, even in this little mystery, or am I going to trust myself? It's a question that we're all faced with every single day. Am I going to trust God, even if it doesn't make perfect sense, Even if I have to deny myself of some instant gratification, am I going to trust myself or am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust that he actually knows better how to run this life than I do? That's the choice that is before you and me every single day. And it's a choice that Adam and Eve are faced with in Genesis chapter 2. And with that choice on the table, we now are ready to move into Genesis chapter 3. So look with me in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent, or the snake, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say to you that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So clearly this is no ordinary snake. This snake is crafty. The word for crafty there, by the way, literally means in the, in the Hebrew, wise. It means prudent or in, in, incredibly, extremely intelligent. The snake also has previous knowledge. It knows about the conversation that God had with the humans. So how does a snake have this knowledge, and apparently it can talk? That's bizarre. And just so you know, by the way, this was just as weird to those who would have heard it back in the ancient times as it is to us. They did not have a category for talking serpents. So what is going on here? What kind of snake is this? Where did it come from, and what is it doing in the garden? And though the author does not give us any answers to those questions, right here, what we do know is this, and this is going to blow some of your mind if you stay with me. According to Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, remember he gets a vision of God's throne room, and there are these angels that are circling around the throne of God that have these wings and faces, and, and they just are singing over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And does anybody remember the name of those angels? It's the seraphim. And seraphim in the Hebrew literally means fiery serpent. It's actually the way it's even translated in places like Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, or uh, verse 8, or in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. And if you're like, okay, what in the world does that have to do with Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? Well, I'm glad you asked. So put me over to Revelation chapter 12 for a moment. Hold your spot in Genesis 3. And flip with me over to Revelation chapter 12. Picking up in verse 7, here's what we read. It says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael, who is kind of the leader of God's angels, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, and then here we go, look, that ancient serpent, or that ancient snake, that seraphim, called the devil, or Satan. And by the way, Satan is actually a title, it, it means adversary, uh, the point of, uh, of the devil being called Satan is, he's, the Bible wants you to know, Satan, the devil, he's not for anything, he's just against everything, That's what Satan means. And so this serpent, the snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled down to where? To the earth and his angels with him. And so, who is the serpent? The devil. And where did he come from? From heaven. He was hurled down from heaven to earth. And I know that for some of you that might raise some other questions, which we can talk about after the service if you want. But for right now, here's the main thing you need to know. According to the Bible, the devil is real. And despite what you might have been told or what you might believe, he is not a myth. He is not a figment of your imagination. He's not a red cartoon character. who's just a silly little cute little kind of annoying thing that's on your shoulder. He is not Will Ferrell in a silly Saturday Night Live skit. He's not Sam Smith on the stage at the Grammys. But rather... The devil is an incredibly powerful creature who is the evil behind all of the other evil in our own souls and in our society. I was watching on Netflix earlier this week a movie called Pope's Exorcist. It's really not that good. I would encourage you to watch it. But before the opening scene, there's a quote that comes on the screen by Father Gabriel who's considered the chief exorcist of the Vatican. Here's what he says. When we jeer at the devil and tell ourselves that he does not exist, that is when he is happiest that's when he's happiest when he's convinced you he doesn't exist here's what i want to say if you believe in god you have to believe in the devil why because even god believes in the devil even jesus who is the son of god believes in the devil and in john 10:10 10, 10, he says that the devil is here and he quote is after three things he wants to kill he wants to steal and he wants to destroy I think of the scene from The Dark Knight where Alfred is warning Bruce Wayne, Batman, about the Joker. And he says this about the Joker. He says, some men aren't looking for anything logical. They can't be bought, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. That's the devil. That's what the devil is like. He is like a villain who is hell-bent on destruction. Because he hates God, he hates you because you're created in the image of God. You know, to the devil, you're nothing to him. He really doesn't care about you, but he hates God for throwing him out of hell because of his pride. And therefore, he is hell-bent on destroying anything that is good or beautiful or true that reflects God's glory. This is why the Apostle Peter would go on to say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so where is the devil at? He's here on earth. What is the devil up to? What is he trying to do right now? He wants to make you disappear. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make you go away. He wants to take you out. And notice a strategy for this. You need to hear this today because some of you are like, well, if there's a devil, then why haven't I ever seen like, any crazy stuff? Like my head, like some people's heads spinning. All right. Like, like <laughs> that's Hollywood, the devil's strategy. He's, he's way smarter than that, It's much more subtle than that. Notice his strategy for how he wants to take humans out. Look with me again, verse 1. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit uh, of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. By the way, God never said you shall not touch it. He only said you can't eat it. So she's adding to God's word here. Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was there and he ate it as well. Notice how according to the Bible, to the story of God, the devil's primary strategy against you is not demonization, possession. It's not his primary strategy. It's not demonization. It's not disaster. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna burn your house down or I'm gonna give you cancer or whatever. It's not his primary strategy. I'm not saying those things don't happen. I believe they actually both of them do happen. But his primary strategy we see here is not it's not demonization, it's not disaster, but rather it's deception. It's to twist God's word in such a way that he leads us away from the truth and into destruction. David Tackle says it like this. He, the devil, cannot violate our will or make us sin. So don't ever say, kids, the devil made me do it. Right? He can't make you do anything. The devil cannot violate our will or make us sin, but he can offer us distorted perceptions as if they were the foundations for life. Twist the truth until we no longer know which end is up. We greatly trivialize the work of the enemy when we say that his primary activity is to tempt us to do bad things. That is only a small part of his strategy. If he can keep us from hearing the truth or keep us from internalizing the truth once we hear it. In other words, Satan has no problem with you sitting here listening to the sermon. That does not bother him at all. His main goal is to keep you from internalizing the sermon. Does that make sense? If he can keep you from internalizing the truth once we hear it, if he can fill our heart with all sorts of distortions about spiritual realities, then we will go off and self-destruct on our own without any need. For constant harassment or temptation, this is the stuff for which the kingdom of darkness is built. Again, in the words of Jesus, the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And notice, according to this story, he does not do that by trying to shove an apple down Eve's throat. He doesn't use hard power. He uses soft power, subtle power. Notice in this story, what is Satan's primary weapon? His primary weapon is just a question Did God really say you shouldn't do this? And by attacking God's command, ultimately what he's doing is he's attacking God's character. He's trying to convince Adam and Eve that this is a God who cannot be trusted. This God is not after your good. This God is not generous. He's stingy. He's held him back from you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. That's why whenever Eve says, well, God said if we eat of the tree, we will die. How does Satan respond? In verse 4, the devil says, you will not certainly die. For God knows when you eat of it, you'll actually become like him, knowing good and evil. He says, don't you see, don't you see, God will not take care of you. He does not love you. He's not generous. He doesn't want you to be happy. And therefore, if you want to find true fulfillment, if you want to really be satisfied, you're going to have to look somewhere other than to him. And I've told you before, this was my testimony you know, I grew up in the church, and I always believed God could save me. The problem is I just didn't believe he could satisfy me. And so what I did is I said, well, I'm going to give God my afterlife. I'm going to pray this magic for me, the prayer, so that I can, you know, like get my fire insurance. Like I want to give God my afterlife, but I didn't want to give him this life. And here's a problem, just so you know. If you don't give God this life, you're not going to get him in the afterlife. But I believe that. I, I just, okay, I'll give God my afterlife, but if I'm really going to be happy, like I'm going to need all this other stuff outside of God. All the things that he said I don't need, I actually do need that. And I begin to look at all kinds of different stuff for fulfillment and satisfaction, things that in the end, I'm telling you, end up doing a lot of damage. And this is what the devil does. He is constantly feeding us on the slide, saying, look, hey, you want to be happy? You want to be fulfilled? You don't need God. What you really need is success. What you really need is money, popularity. What you really need is to do whatever you want, whenever you want. Don't deny yourself of anything. You know better. You, little boy, who's been here for 15 years. You know better than an infinite God. You, grown man who has a master's degree, oh, you have so much more knowledge than this infinite God. You want to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Go for it. It's just really nothing more than an animal. Just sex. You want to do whatever you want with your money, consume whatever you want? No big deal. You want to gossip? You want to look at porn? You want to take advantage of other people and basically live however you want and just do whatever's best for you? That's what everybody does. It's not a big deal. In the process, what does he do? And I don't have to make this up because you know it if he's doing it to you right now. He makes you more and more discontent, more dissatisfied, more anxious, more depressed, more unhappy, more bitter, more cynical. He promises you one thing. He's so good at it. And he gives you the complete opposite of what you think you're going to get whenever you actually taste it. It's what we see happening right here. In verse 7, Adam and Eve, they eat of this fruit God told them not to eat from, and it says in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves, and so before there was sin in the world, they were naked and unashamed, but now because of sin, they're naked, and they feel a lot of shame, and what's the problem with shame? Shame is different than guilt. Guilt says, I've done bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, uh, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. It's about an identity. Guilt is like a stain on your shirt. Shame, if you're living in shame, it's like a disfigured face, you feel like I'm lug- I'm ugly, I'm unwanted, I'm unlovable. And what we do, we see it right here, is Adam and Eve, because they're filled with shame, they now begin to hide. They now begin to cover. They now begin to try to, to, to act differently, to look different in the way they really are. Out of fear of rejection, because of their flaws, they cover themselves with these fig leaves. And so the relational intimacy they once, ex- once experienced in their marriage is now gone. And if that's not tragic enough, not only is their relationship with one another damaged, but so is their relationship with God. If you look with me in verse 8, it says, And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? By the way, that's not a geographical question. That's a relational question. God knows where they are. It's kind of like I'm playing hide and seek with my kids, and I can see their feet sticking out from underneath the, the chair. I'm like, Where are you? Right? Like, God knows where they are. So he's just trying to invite them back into relationship. Unlike so many people today that whenever you sin and you screw up and they cast you out, that's not the way God rose. He's trying to call them back into relationship. Where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I've commanded you not to eat? And the man said, It's the woman. It's the woman's fault. All right, like the honeymoon stage is now clearly over for Adam and Eve. The woman you gave me, it's her fault. And notice, by the way, God doesn't argue with Adam. He doesn't say Adam's wrong. I just want to throw that out there. In verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate. So now this warm, intimate friendship with Adam and Eve is destroyed, and so is their relationship with God. They go from abiding in God to running from God, to hiding from God. So there's a loss of intimacy with one another, a loss of intimacy with God, and there's a loss of their own home. In verse 23, we don't have time to read it, but God eventually kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, out of paradise, out of delight. And whenever when Adam and Eve leave the garden, sin, along with death, spreads to all of creation. That's why in Genesis chapter four they have these kids, right? And two of them, Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain gets jealous of his brother Abel, and so he kills him. See the first murder. Uh, Genesis chapter six: as human population increases, so does sin. Remember the story from Revelation twelve, how there was a war in heaven, and there were all these fallen angels. Maybe we have a picture of it, even like a a painting of it. But there's all these fallen angels that come to this earth. And in Genesis chapter 6, what we find is women begin to have sex with these fallen angels. And as a result, it creates a whole new race of these violent warrior giants called the Nephilim, which basically are these human rebels that are enslaved to spiritual evil and therefore spread darkness and death with them everywhere they go. And so the earth begins to just be covered with sin covered with brokenness covered with with devastation it's just and it's it's as bad as it gets and so what god finally says is, man i'm sorry i created this i'm just going to wipe everything out he decides to flood the earth the the division that, that that we see between the earth and the waters that god established in day one in genesis one that is undone there's a return to chaos which existed before the world was made. And fortunately, God decides to show grace and mercy to one family. He says to Noah, I want you to build an ark. I'm going to put your family on this ark, bring some animals on there as well. It's going to be kind of like this little Eden in the midst of of this great kind of wrath that's going to be poured out on the earth. And so God wipes out everything else. Eventually, the waters subside. He opens the door to the ark. Out comes Noah and his family, and he says to them the same thing he said in Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with my glory. And so here they go, and and, and Noah, he starts a garden, and you're like, cool, great, good idea. We're going to get back to the Garden of Eden, right? But then Noah decides to start a vineyard, and Noah starts drinking a little bit, and eventually Noah gets drunk, and then we see this really kind of kinky, weird thing happen between Noah and his own kids. And what you quickly discover if you read the Bible is the reason the world is such a wicked and vile place. The reason the world is so messed up is because we're messed up. The problem is not out there, according to the Bible. The problem starts in here. Wickedness and sin is inside of each of our own hearts. This is why the prophet Jeremiah once said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. You come to Genesis chapter 11, and we see eventually there's these people that are trying to build a tower to heaven, and you're like, sweet, that's really cool. Like, they're using resources, just as God said, to do something constructed, to build something really cool, and, and maybe they're building this for the glory of God. But as you read the story, you see, actually, they're not building it for the glory of God. They're basically building it to say, God, we appreciate all that you've done, but we've got it from here. And this starts the cycle of sin all through the Old Testament, if you read it. And here's the cycle, and maybe you see it even in your own life. People get successful. People start getting a little swagger, get a little arrogant. They think, I don't need God. Eventually, they fall on their face. And then in desperation, they cry out to God, now I need you because I have nowhere else to turn. God shows them mercy. They get back on their feet. They start getting a little bit of a swagger again, feeling comfortable, getting some success. Once again, pride goes before the fall, right? They once again experience destruction, devastation. They cry out to God out of mercy. God rescues them again. And then the cycle just continues to peak to where they fall back into this spiral and things go really, really bad. It's a really depressing story. If you're ever trying to read the Old Testament, it really is a depressing story. And when you come to the end of it, the question you're asking is, who's going to fix this thing? Right? Like, every movie out there, like, you always got to have a hero to try to fix it. Like, that's what's happening when you're reading this. Like, well, who's the hero going to be? Because all these guys you think are going to do it, like, these heroes of the faith, David and and Samson and Abraham and Moses, they're just as jacked up pretty much as everybody else is. So what? H- how are we going to get out of this mess? And that's a question we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking in the weeks to come. But for now, here's three things I just want you to see, and then we'll be done. First off, whenever you look at the account in Genesis chapter 3, here's the first thing you need to know. Sin is not trusting God. If anybody ever asks you, what is sin? That's the best definition I know how to give you, even after a master's degree in theology. Sin is not trusting God. Or in the words of St. Ignatius of Loyola, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. I think of my son Moses, who uh, is a sugar addict, and we're trying to, to get him to where he actually will eat something that's not sugar. And so we have gotten to where we're trying to get him to eat fruits and vegetables and, and maybe put, like, the chips and things like that on a higher shelf that he can't get to. But what I've discovered is, though Moses is like, yeah, cool, Dad, this is what I want, too, he will sometimes sneak behind my back, and he'll grab some sweets or grab some snacks, and you'll find him, like, you know, Smeagol with a ring or whatever, like, in his room. just like, you know, you'll like find this little, like, paper candy trail or, or you know, uh, goldfish trail or whatever, and there he is in the closet just, oh, my precious, you know. And, uh, and, and and why does he do that? He does that because he doesn't really trust that what I'm telling him is what's best for him. And guys, that's the root of every sin. We don't really trust that we have a good and perfect Father who knows better than we do how to live our lives. And so when we sin and we break one of God's commands, it's not just, oh, I did something bad. Gosh darn it, I'm... Uh, Look at me, I'm such a terrible person. Like, that's not, that's such an ignorant view of sin. No, no offense. Sin is not just, I just did something bad that God told me not to do. Like, sin is not trusting God. It's not trusting He has your best interests in mind. I was listening to a sermon by John Mark Comer earlier this week, and he pointed out that sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. You understand the difference? Sin, he says, is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Guys, God is not a celestial killjoy. He is not trying to rob you of life. He's not some fuddy dud who's just up there being like, what sounds like fun? Like, don't do that. Like, that is is such a skewed view of God that you got from maybe grandma or grandpa or some pastor on TV. You did not get that from the Bible. This God is the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. He is the source of everything you want. And when He sees something that He knows will give you the opposite of what you need, He says, You have that sin. Don't do that. Don't follow after that. Don't touch that. If God tells us something is off limits, it's not because He's holding back on us, it's because He knows that all sin on one level or another leads to death. And that leads me to my second point, which is this sin has devastating consequences. Adam and Eve's decision to disobey God fractured everything. And we read a little bit about this. There's even more consequences we see if we had time to read it in verse 16. God says to Eve, hey, from the time your kids come into this world, they're going to bring you a lot of pain. He also says to the, to the woman, you're going to desire your husband, but he's going to rule over you. A better translation of that is, listen, ladies, your husband will never be able to give you everything that you long for. Ever. Never happen. Romance will not be enough. Your marriage will not be enough. You find... I don't care if it's Rico Suave or whoever. Like, 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 Your husband is a broken, sinful man. And he will not be able to fulfill your deepest desires. And then he goes on and he says to the man, he's like, hey, your work's going to be hard. You're going to experience a lot of thorns and thistles. And so what that means is, dudes is even if you landed your dream job, there's still going to be days where you'd like to quit. Even I as a pastor have days where I would like to quit. I was telling the first service that there are days where I'm like, man, I think working at Lowe's sounds pretty good, you know, or running a bread truck. I like. I want to be that guy who's stalking like Walmart with bread. That sounds pretty nice to only have to be responsible to stand before God and give an account for, for bread rather than souls. Work is going to be difficult. It's interesting. I was thinking about this this week. You know, a lot of you are in DNAs, which are these groups of three to four men and three to four women. And from what I understand, um, from talking with different women, a lot of times what ladies say their biggest issue are issue is the things they want to talk about, things that brings them the most stress, usually has to do with their kids or their marriage. And the men, it usually has to do with their work. All goes back to the fall. It's all a consequence. Sin kills. It kills our joy. It kills our confidence. It kills our peace. It kills our happiness. It kills relationships. It kills churches. And so please hear me, and I'll move on. That little sin that you are living with right now that you think is not a big deal because it's just one little bite, because it's just one little taste, because it's just one little look, because it's just one little piece of gossip or one little swipe of the credit card or one little drink or one little touch, you need to realize that all sin on one level or another has major consequences. I don't care how small or insignificant it seems, and if you're like, yeah, well, I don't believe you, Well, then you've never talked to a kid who's the product of divorce. Because they will tell you the result of the sins of their parents not only had consequences on their parents, but even on them. Talk to someone who's been married to a drug addict. Ask them if the sins of other people have consequences beyond just that person who commits the sin. Absolutely it does. All sin on one level or another leads to death. That is why in James chapter 5, James says, if you see a brother or sister in sin and you turn them from that, he says, quote, you save them from death notice that he d- I wonder how much we, we believe that like we see someone in sin and we're like if I go to that person like I'm just trying to get them to do the right thing. I'm trying to tell them how hey, you're doing the wrong thing, now let me get you to do the right thing. That's not the way the Bible talks about sin. The Bible talks about sin when you go to when you try to call someone away from sin, you're trying to save their life. You've heard me share this at least a couple different times, but whenever I was in ninth grade, my brother had a seizure, went underwater. My mom, right, she woke me up. She's yelling. She's like, Your brother is dead, right? She's freaking out. And in this moment, when she's like, Do something, Jared, save him, I don't look at my mom and say, I mean, woman, I've still got 15 minutes of sleep. This is your son. It's not my son. That's not my responsibility. And besides, he's, he, he was in the bathtub. He's, he's naked. I mean, that would be awkward. It's that's not, that's not my place. I didn't do any of that. I got up, and immediately I began CPR on him. Because I knew if I didn't do something, my brother was going to die. And it's with that same level of urgency we should, we should move towards someone in love and compassion when we see them in sin. So, this is what we see in Genesis chapter 3. We see sin as not trusting God. Sin has devastating consequences. And lastly, I'll say this in Genesis 3, we also learn that Jesus is our only hope. Say, so where do you see that at? Verse 15, look with me. This is where we'll end. God says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers. And look at this. This is bizarre. Remember, you're reading this for the first time. Like, what's going on here? And he, who is he? He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God comes to Adam and Eve and he doesn't say, you're going to have to fix all this. He says, I'm going to fix all this. And the way I'm going to do it is a way you'd never expect. I'm going to send another man who's going to do it right who's never going to sin, who's never going to take the fruit. I'm going to send someone who's going to come and live as a snake crusher, who's going to put an end to sin and the power of death and all of those things and give you the life that you long for. And then right before God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, what does he do in verse 21? God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. Now, why is that significant? Because this is a foretaste of what God does spiritually for every single person who trusts in Jesus Christ. Say, Jim, what are you talking about? Second Corinthians 5:21Say with me. God made him talking about Jesus, who knew no sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. Do you know what the gospel tells us? That just as God shed the blood of an innocent animal in Genesis chapter 3 so he could clothe them with animal skin, he would shed the blood of his innocent son, the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ, so that you, when you trust in him, can be clothed in his righteousness. So that you can now stand before God holy and blameless and accepted. In Acts thirteen thirty-eight, Paul says, Through this man, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and everyone who believes is freed from everything. Anybody in the room today committed some sins they felt they need to be forgiven of? Jesus is your hope. Anybody got anything they're enslaved to right now, some sins they just can't whip? They feel enslaved, like it's just ball and chain, just like they're, they're dragging around? Jesus is your hope. Our God is the kind of God who rather than saying, you made your bed, now lay in it. Rather than him saying, you work your way back to me, he worked his way to us, the person of Christ, and then he calls us out of hiding, not to kill us, but to cover us, to wrap us in his love. And so the invitation this morning is simply this. Come out of hiding. Stop hiding behind the fig leaves. Stop hiding behind this little smile on Sundays. that says, oh, everything's fine. I'm doing great. Stop hiding behind your resume. Stop hiding behind your money. Stop hiding behind your nice vehicles and your toys and your trinkets and your cool clothes and all of that. Come out of hiding and admit today to God, I know I'm broken. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm flawed. I know that I'm worse than I ever imagined. But because of Jesus, I'm more loved than I ever dreamed. And today I choose to surrender it all to you, the one who I believe is the source of my life.